The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. I actually want to start with a, another video clip this morning, uh, and it's from an episode of a television show called Breaking Bad. Um, I'll make a confession here. It's actually what I consider to be one of the best television shows that's ever been made. Um, and it's because of its storytelling that I think it, in very insightful ways explores the struggle between good and evil in the human heart and our search for meaning in life. Um, at the same time, I'm a little bit hesitant to recommend it for everyone because there's no doubt about it. I admit it can be really graphically violent uh, at times. And I, prior to that, I actually thought I'd just say a few words. And this is, has nothing to do with the sermon, but I thought it's just worth saying a few things about this because the truth is I reference a lot of television shows and uh, movies in my sermons, and you may immediately go and watch it, you know, that Sunday evening. And, uh, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I always hesitate, you know, because I do try to be careful about, um, you know, what I do reference. And um, let me say this. As Christians, I don't think we ought to automatically oppose any movies or TV shows that depict violence. Um, I argue that instead we need to discern this is, I think, where the discernment lies, is whether that violence that's being depicted uh, serves a purpose of conveying a deeper meaning, uh, or if it's just gratuitous with no deeper purpose than to entertain us with the violence in and of itself. And I, I think there's a discernment to be made there. And at the risk of uh, offending and maybe confusing things, let me actually try to give you an example of both of those categories. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, I would argue, would be an example of the former. There's no doubt about it. It depicts quite a lot of violence. Um, but I would argue that it serves the purpose of portraying the intensity of the battle between good and evil uh, in our world. Uh, for me, John Wick chapter 2 would be an example of the latter category, okay? Now, I'm sorry because I know there probably are some John Wick fans here. Um, the level of violence was so graphic and unrelenting to me that uh, after 15 minutes of watching this movie, I actually had to turn it off and stop watching it. Uh, it just didn't seem necessary for storytelling purposes, and it just seemed so unnecessarily gratuitous, uh, the kind of violence that was being portrayed on this show, uh, that this movie, that I literally turned it off. Um, now, listen, I get it. I don't think we're all going to be in agreement with these things, okay? Some Christians argued this kind of this way, is if you can't watch a movie or a television show with your young children present, then you shouldn't be watching it at all, even as an adult. And I understand the heart behind what's being said there, uh, but I don't actually fully agree with that argument. Uh, I would actually even argue that the Bible itself describes some really graphically violent scenes that may not be appropriate for young kids. Uh, 
but God includes them in these stories, in his scriptures, to teach us some important lessons about our faith, okay? Uh, there are definitely some passages in scripture that I'm not sure I would want to read in the presence of young children that just may not be appropriate at that age. And so I think the bottom line of what I'm saying is that we need a lot of discretion and wisdom when it comes to what we allow into our eyes, into our minds, and to really say, you know, what is it to really honor God the best way that I can by the entertainment that I consume. Now, you may be thinking, man, we're going to see a really gory scene, I guess, you know. No, there's no violence in the scene that I'm going to show you this morning. Um, the scene that I want to show you actually comes from the first season of Breaking Bad. And it actually happens to be the episode that got me hooked on the series, what convinced me of the intelligence uh, and the depth of the storytelling uh, in Breaking Bad. Uh, at the start of the series, the main character, Walter White, uh, on his 50th birthday, discovers that he has lung cancer. And he basically informs his family that he doesn't want to receive treatment for the cancer, that he just wants to let nature take its, its course and to die. Well, um, his wife doesn't like it one bit, and in her protest, organizes a family conference to discuss the matter. And so I want to show you portions of that scene when the family discusses Walter's cancer and whether or not he should get chemotherapy or not. And so let's go ahead and take a look at that video, and then we'll go on in just a minute here. <clears throat> I think that scene captures really well... Um, the disruption and the struggle that often arises within families uh, when somebody is near death. And what it really brings out is that just as we live our lives in community with others, uh, we also die as a part of a larger community. And as much as we may want to respect the wishes of the dying and care for them, in their last days. I think what we often discover is that we also need things from those who are dying. And that can come out in a lot of different ways. We may want them to survive as long as possible. And so we insist for our sakes that they fight heroically for every last breath that is medically possible no matter what it may cost them. Or maybe we need a sense of closure, and so we engage in desperate conversations, hoping to say and to hear words that could never be shared in earlier years. I think what I'm saying is, is this. When we face our death, we begin to understand what our life means to others and the impact our death will have on them. And you may be wondering, why am I getting into all of this about death? And it's because today, I want to talk about King David's death and the kind of death that he ended up dying. Understanding all this will help us to understand all the drama that's going to unfold at the very end of David's life. David is now an old man 
and everyone can sense that his end is near. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 1 opens up with these words. When King David was very old, he could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. David became king when he was 30 years old, and we know that he reigned for 40 years. That would mean that he's probably 70 years old when these events in 1 Kings chapter 1 and 2 are taking place. And the king is dying, and it's seen as a problem by everyone in David's court. To them, David represented all of the hopes and dreams of Israel, and his death would jeopardize the security and well-being of an entire nation. Who else could unite the 12 tribes like David could? Who else could comfort an entire nation in mourning when they lost their king? Who was able to put the fear of God in the hearts of the Philistines like David could? Even an old, dying David was better than any other alternative the Israelites could find. And so they would do everything within their power to revive their dying king. In verses 2 to 4 of 1 Kings 1, it continues, So his attendants said to him, Let us look for a young virgin to serve the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our lord the king is warm. Then they searched throughout Israel for a beautiful young woman and found Abishag, a Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The woman was very beautiful. She took care of the king and waited on him, but the king had no sexual relations with her. So the solution to the problem is to find a beautiful young virgin for the king. And so after a long search through the entire nation, they finally find a woman named Abishag. Now, in observing how Absalom ended up sleeping with David's concubines on the rooftop of the palace, I pointed out that in those days, a king's power was associated with his sexual potency. Now, it's a little hard to know what's going on here, and it's because when the Bible talks about sexual matters, sorry, When the Bible talks about sexual matters, it really tries to avoid crass language. And so it'll use substitute terms. And so when you read this account in the English Bible translation, you kind of lose the subtlety of what's happening here. But if you look at the original Hebrew text, it's pretty undeniable that Abishag was given to David, made fully available to him, for sexual purposes. It's hard to get away from that conclusion. The thinking was, if they slept together, it would give assurance to everyone in the nation that the king was still powerful, that he, he hadn't lost his mojo, you know? And they might have even thought that this young virgin could even maybe um, revive something that was dying in their king. There was a time when women were falling all over David. There was also a time when David knew exactly what to do with a woman. 
But now they find the most beautiful woman that they could find in the whole country, and they have her snuggle right up next to him in bed. And David does nothing. David does nothing. Those days are long gone for him. So here is this beautiful woman made available to him, and David has neither the strength nor the desire to do anything with her. I mean, David's only interest in Abishag is the fact that she's warm-blooded, okay? That she actually can provide body heat for him. And so their plan ends up backfiring. Rather than rejuvenating David's strength, Abishag exposes that there didn't seem to be anything left to revive in this old man, in their dying and impotent king. And you would think that Absalom's death would have been the end of David's troubles with his children, but there's going to be one last drama waiting to play out with them. Because of David's children, David cannot die in peace. Immediately after David's weakness is exposed, we're told that his son Adonijah moves into action. Now, in a previous message, we saw how Amnon, David's firstborn, was killed by Absalom in revenge for raping his sister Tamar. David's secondborn, Kiliab, is only mentioned once. Only his birth is announced. And so scholars think that most likely he must have died in in childhood. David's thirdborn, Absalom, was killed by the general Joab during Absalom's rebellion against David. So the first three sons born to David pretty much are wiped out. They're dead. But there is a fourth, Adonijah, born to his wife, Haggith. And Adonijah believes that he has the rightful claim to the throne after David. You know, what's interesting is the truth is there's just no precedent for this because the, Saul and David, the first two kings of Israel, they were handpicked by God. There was never a succession from a father to a son in Israel. And so there's nothing in the law of Israel that tells the nation how to pick the next king. But Adonijah, maybe understanding that, decides to take matters into his own hands. And so before David is even dead, he decides he will declare himself king. He must have read Absalom's book, How to Become King in 12 Easy Steps, because look at what he does. In verse 5, Now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. That's exactly out of Absalom's playbook. Exactly what Absalom does. We're given this additional detail about Adonijah in verse 6. His father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome and was born next after Absalom. Once again, David is being exposed as an absent and permissive parent who didn't discipline his children. And once again, David must reap the consequences of his poor parenting. 
In verses 7 to 10, it says, Adonijah conferred with Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they gave him their support. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rei, and David's special guard did not join Adonijah. Adonijah then sacrificed sheep, cattle, and fattened calves at the stone of Zohelet near Enrogel. He invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the special guard, or his brother. Solomon. And so Adonijah declares himself king and holds a banquet in his own honor. And all of David's sons are invited to the banquet, but interestingly, he excludes Solomon. And Joab also throws his support behind Adonijah, as does Abiathar the priest. This is really shocking because both of these men had stood by David from the very beginning. They were some of his closest allies. And now they sided with his son. If you kind of have gotten a profile of Joab's personality, though, it kind of makes sense. Because although Joab was loyal, he also was a pragmatist at heart. And I think it's very likely that he saw this aging, decrepit David and said, man, it's time for you to go and move aside and let a younger king come in because the nation can't move forward until you're dead. So just get out of the way, David, and let your son rule. So at the twilight of David's life, he has to deal with yet one more disappointment. One more son who wants to take his throne. And I wonder what must have been going on through David's mind as he reflected on the course that his life had taken. On the one hand, David clung to the hope of God's promise given to him years ago in 2 Samuel verse 7, 16. It says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. That was God's promise to David of an everlasting kingdom that will never go away. But he must have also remembered the words given to him when he sinned with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 12, verse 10 through 11, it says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. And so David is, in essence, living between these two promises. One of blessing and hope and the other of judgment and discipline. And I'm sure that at that moment, as he witnesses yet one more son breaking his heart, those earlier words of hope and promise from God must have felt so far away, fading into the distance. How was God going to make an eternal dynasty out of the mess of his family? of all of the chaos that was represented in the choices that his children were making. How is any of this mess redeemable for God's plan? And I think the truth is the weight of guilt on David must have been tremendous. Not only because of his sin against Bathsheba and Uriah, 
but also because of his glaring failures as a parent. Once again, also, David is pierced by the pain of trusted friends who betray him and turn their backs on him. It's interesting that when Saul and Jonathan die on Mount Gilboa fighting the Philistines, that David would write a beautiful song in their honor. And he called the entire nation to take a pause from the war that they were fighting and caused an entire nation to mourn the death of these two men. But sadly, when David himself is on his deathbed, there will be no one present to write a song in his honor. There will be no lament for David. There will be no remembering and celebrating his life. Eugene Peterson writes this, When David died, no one at all lamented him. He died in the middle of a family squabble with no hint of either tribute or eulogy. Instead of dying in peace with his children and wives gathered around him, expressing love and gratitude, he was embroiled in a mare's nest of intrigue and deceit. And it was only what others were doing. And it wasn't only what others were doing. David himself contributed his share to the general messiness of the occasion. And so when we look at David's life, especially the end of his life, only with human eyes, it's pretty dark. It's pretty bleak, isn't it? But thankfully, that's not where the story ends. The prophet Nathan gets involved with what Adonijah is doing. And so in verses 11 to 14, it says this. Then Nathan asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And our Lord David knows nothing about it. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in to King David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me, your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? While you are still there talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. It's clear from Adonijah's arrogance and ambition. This guy is not fit to be king. But more importantly, David has already declared by oath that Solomon is to succeed him as king. Now what's interesting is this. There is no record of this oath anywhere else in the Bible. But in the series of exchanges that are going to take place, it becomes very clear that both Bathsheba and Nathan, as well as David himself, will acknowledge that this oath was made to her. So we don't have the biblical witness of how this all unfolded, but what we do know is this, is that somehow God must have revealed to David that Solomon was the chosen one the one chosen by God to carry on his dynasty. And so Nathan hatches a plan for Bathsheba to approach David and remind him of this oath. And so Bathsheba obeys Nathan and approaches David. In verses 15 to 21, the story continues. So Bathsheba went to see the aged king in his room where Abishag the Shunammite was attending him. 
That's got to be an awkward moment, huh? Um, Bathsheba bowed down, prostrating herself before the king. What is it you want, the king asked. She said to him, my Lord, you yourself swore to me, your servant, by the Lord your God. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. But now Adonijah has become king, and you, my lord, the king, do not know about it. He has sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves, and sheep, and has invited all the king's sons, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army, but he has not invited Solomon, your servant. My lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord, the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. And so just as Nathan instructed, Bathsheba reminds David of his oath that Solomon will be king. And she adds this one detail that if you do not honor your word before you die, things are going to go really badly for me and Solomon. You know that. You know what Adonijah is likely to do to us. And then just as was planned, Nathan enters the room and he affirms everything that Bathsheba has said. I too have heard that oath, David. I too have heard you swear that Solomon will be king. I think David's response sort of catches everyone off guard. It's interesting that from the beginning of this chapter, David does not utter a single word. In fact, not a single action of David's is recorded. I think the picture that we're given is of an elderly man who barely has the energy to do anything. Things are done to him. He does not do anything. And yet, suddenly, David comes alive. And in verses 28 to 37, this is what happens. Then King David said, call in Bathsheba. So she came in to the king's presence and stood before him. Then, king, then the king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out this very day what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Then Bathsheba bowed down with her face to the ground, prostrating herself before the king and said, May my Lord, King David, live forever. King David said, call in Zadok, the priest, Nathan, the prophet, and Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. When they came before the king, he said to them, take your Lord's servants with you and have Solomon, my son, mount my own mule and take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok, the priest, and Nathan, the prophet, anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the king, so declare it. As the Lord was with my Lord, the king, so may he be with Solomon to make his throne even greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. It's fascinating, huh? A young, beautiful virgin in David's bed could not rekindle his youthful passion. But these words of Bathsheba and Nathan will awaken something in this dying king that causes him to act in one last heroic action of faith by ensuring that his son Solomon will become king instead of Adonijah. 
And so David orchestrates everything so that there will be no doubt who David has chosen to be the next king of Israel. And so the story goes on in verse 38, and it says, So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule. And they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. Then they sounded the trumpet, and all the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Adonijah, the party that Adonijah was hosting was still going on, actually, during all of this. Adonijah and all the guests who were with him heard it as they were finishing their feast. On hearing the sound of the trumpet, Joab asked, what's the meaning of all the noise in the city? Even as he was speaking, Jonathan, son of Abiathar, the priest, arrived. Adonijah said, come in. A worthy man like you must be bringing good news. Not at all, Jonathan answered. Our Lord King David has made Solomon king. The king has sent him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites, and they have put him on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. From there they have gone up cheering, and the city resounds with it. That's the noise you hear. Moreover, Solomon has taken his seat on the royal throne. Also, the royal officials have come to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, may your God make Solomon's name more famous than yours and his throne greater than yours. And the king bowed in worship on his bed and said, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. At this, all Adonijah's guests rose in alarm and dispersed. But Adonijah, in fear of Solomon, went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then Solomon was told, Adonijah is afraid of King Solomon and is clinging to the horns of the altar. He says, let King Solomon swear to me today that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. Solomon replied, if he shows himself to be worthy, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground. But if evil is found in him, he will die. Then King Solomon sent men and they brought him down from the altar. And Adonijah came and bowed to King Solomon. And Solomon said, go to your home. So Adonijah faces the dreaded reality that his gamble has failed. He will not be king. And his guests realize this too, and they bail on him as quickly as they rallied around him. And now Solomon's rule as the next king of Israel would be undisputed. Now, as I try to draw this message to a close, I want us to reflect, what can we learn from all this? Is there a lesson here for us? Well, I think the way we need to try to answer that is by asking, what caused the sudden change in David? when he was reminded of this oath that he made that Solomon would be the king. I think it is this. It was because through that oath, David was reminded that despite all of his sins and failures and the painful consequences that he was reaping because of them, that God had made a promise to David, your kingdom 
will be a kingdom forever. It will last into eternity. And I think by seeing Solomon on his own throne, it was God giving him a glimpse of that promise to David. In his lifetime, David only got a glimpse. But seeing Solomon assume the throne was enough for David to fall in worship on his bed as a dying man and say, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. You know, as I was studying this passage, it made me think of all of David's sons. Why Solomon? Why Solomon? And I thought, maybe a better question than that is this. Of all of David's wives, why Bathsheba? Why Bathsheba? What David did to Bathsheba was the source of his greatest shame. It was the darkest chapter in his life. And in light of that, you would think that what would be best is to slowly push Bathsheba into the background where she will basically disappear and be a footnote in the history of David's life. But instead, God does something radically different. God elevates Bathsheba to the place of highest honor among all of David's wives by choosing her son to be the next king of Israel. After the death of their first child that they had together, we find these words in 2 Samuel 12, verse 24 to 25. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him. And because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan, the prophet, to name him Jedidiah. Jedidiah in Hebrew means beloved of God. That child among all of David's children seemed to have held a special place in God's heart. And I believe this is a message not only to David, but to all of us, that God can redeem even the darkest, most shameful chapters of our life for his glory. David would not witness this in his lifetime, but Solomon will continue David's family line through which Jesus himself was born into our world. When Jesus died on the cross, he brought us peace with God, and it would ultimately be that peace that would be the fulfillment of everything God promised to David, that I will establish a kingdom that will never fade, will never be taken down. 
And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we become partakers in that promise to David. We become citizens of that kingdom that was built through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so I think there's an important message for us here this morning. Because the truth is this, is that like David, it is impossible to get through this life unscathed. All of us will pick up scars along the way. And the truth is that sadly, like David, many of the wounds will be self-inflicted. And so in midst of life struggles, it can really be hard at times to believe that there is God's plan in it all. You just, how could David believe that? I mean, all of us would hope that in our deathbed, we would be surrounded by loved ones reflecting on a life well lived. But the truth is we don't all get that, do we? David certainly didn't get that. And so where was the hope? Where was the will to go on and believe that God was in this? Let me ask you to you this way. What would you say is the deepest need of the human heart? What do you think it is? What is the deepest need of the human heart? I think a lot of people would answer it maybe if you look at human behavior, uh, maybe what we're all craving and seeking is happiness, or pleasure even. And that would certainly answer a lot of human behavior, explain a lot of what we do. But happiness or pleasure can't explain why as people we will willingly suffer and forego happiness during seasons of our life. And I would argue this. One of the deepest longings of the human heart is to find meaning in life. What I would say is that we can endure almost anything in this life if we believe that there is a meaning or a purpose behind it all. And if we judge the meaning of our lives only by the immediate circumstances that surround us, the truth is we are very likely to walk away frustrated and confused. I mean, look at David's life. Look at the mess of David's life. Even to his deathbed, children fighting with one another, wives jockeying for their sons. That's his deathbed. But we need the eyes of faith to see beyond the circumstances that God is always for us and always for our good. I think that is the faith that David possessed, that enabled him as a 70-year-old dying man to worship God and praise him on his deathbed. When he saw his son Solomon ascend to the throne, it was a glimpse to him that God would be faithful to the promises that he made to him that your kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. And despite all of the ways that you have failed, David, despite all of your sin and all of your brokenness and everything you've done to mess this up as best as you could, God would prove himself faithful to David. 
What we can say is this, is that through Christ, our life is redeemed for God's greater purpose and meaning. This is what it means to be a part of God's kingdom. We become participants in the story that God is writing through the salvation that we find in Jesus Christ. And so let me just point you to two verses in the New Testament that I think help us to understand this about our own story. Romans 8, 37 to 39. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that is the mystery that David discovered on his deathbed. In the midst of everything that I have done in my life, God has proven himself faithful to me. He has never departed from me in his faithful presence and love for me. One more verse that I would read and then we'll wrap up here. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now the truth is sometimes you look at the messiness of our lives and, and you struggle to say, is there really anything redeeming about the things that I'm doing, the sacrifices that I'm making, the efforts that I'm putting out to save this marriage, to rescue my children, to do everything that I think God wants me to do. And yet, sometimes when we just look at circumstances, it's pretty bleak. But the eyes of faith say, don't lose sight of the fact that God is always present. And he is writing you into his story. And you may not even see the fullness of that in your lifetime. But by faith, we come to live our life in that knowledge that God has a plan for us. And it's always for our good. It's always because of his love for us. Let's pray. As we close our service this morning and some closing worship, just want to invite you to maybe as we are wrapping up this David series, just to reflect and maybe for some of you, you are really genuinely scratching your head going, you know, I mean, we've been studying this life of David for the whole last year and in the craziness of this guy's life, I don't even know what sense to make of a lot of this stuff, you know? Like sometimes the guy's a scoundrel and I want to punch him in the face and other times he's capable of these amazing moments of selfless faith and love and trust. And I think the truth is that also describes the complexity of our lives. And when we, again, just look at the circumstances, it can be very daunting, very discouraging even. There could be a sense in which we say, gosh, you know, I just, I don't see it. I don't really see it. And, I, I, and I'm going to argue again, what the soul was made for is to find meaning, find purpose. Not happiness as the ultimate end, but meaning. We need to know that there's a purpose in it all. We need to know that God has a plan for us and that we're not just victims of fate or random circumstance. And so my prayer for you this morning, my hope for you, 
is that maybe in the messiness you are experiencing of life, and even as you struggle with self-inflicted wounds, choices made years ago for which you are now paying the consequence. And maybe there's a, a sort of a desperation that says, maybe I just blew it. Maybe it's too late for me. Maybe there's no hope. Maybe what I'm relegated to is God's second or third best. I can never have God's best for my life. And I want to challenge you to see through the eyes of faith as we see in the life of David, that something glorious, something awesome, something amazing can be salvaged from the brokenness of our lives. And so can we just come before God in prayer this day and just say, God, give me that faith that David had, that even in the midst of all the crazy drama that was unfolding at his deathbed, he could still kneel in that bed and say, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has allowed my eyes to see a successor on my throne today. Let's just come before him and say, God, help me to see that you have a purpose in it all, that you have a purpose in my life. And out of that, give me the strength, the courage to keep on working and serving and persevering and being faithful. Even in the midst of all the opposition I face and the struggles I'm encountering, and the resistance I'm meeting, God, I just want to look to you and believe that you have a purpose and a plan in my life. Let's just pray that as our worship team will in just a minute here close this in some closing worship.